It's loud. It's obnoxious. But it's relevant. It's Dr. CarCast with your host, Dan Lacey. Dan Lacey here, your host with Dr. Carcass, and I want to welcome in a guest of mine who is an old friend and dear guy, and I, I loved spending time around him. I loved his passion for the sport of auto racing, and uh, welcome, uh, Nick Asayan. Nick, great to see you. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me today. Um, you know, before we got started today, reflecting on some of the good times, you know, it starts to spur all of the memories and mm. funny stories and uh you know, I think there's probably a couple of books to be written about all that we experienced and saw together. <laughs> Some of the chapters probably aren't publishable. That's but true. That's okay. Yeah. Nick, it's been probably, oh my gosh, uh, seven, eight years since we've seen each other. Since I've been out, you got out a little bit after that. You did something that kind of shocked me a little bit because I had no idea you were a part of. Um, but in my mind's eye, you took something that was a passion on one end and maybe a need on the other and speculation. And you, you put them together and you made the one make the other better. And that is football. And I'm passionate about football as well. Matter of fact, you've teamed up with a guy. I don't know if you still are, but in, in June, on June 30th of 2021, uh, my favorite quarterback came alongside you guys with FNA, the uh, football in America, uh, Drew Brees. And sure. I've just been a diehard Saints fan. But tell me, as you have now this company called Light Helmets, and that's lighthelmets.com, uh, as a CEO, how in the world did you get from where we were in auto racing to where you are today in football? Well, f- funny story. Again, thanks for having me on here. You know, I played some college football at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater. It's a D3 school. Um, love football, love playing in high school, you know, as a young person, love watching football. And uh, I played one week or two weeks on the Milwaukee Express, which was like a semi foot pro football team. And I showed up for practice and I was like, man, I'm just too old for this. I was getting my butt kicked and, uh, you know, I could still play and I'd started autocrossing and, uh, somebody had invited me to go to the Ford sports car race. And I'm like, I got to do this. So I got started as an amateur advanced things. And, you know, it was duplicitous to my career. And, you know, unfortunately there's not a lot of seats at the table in the pro racing world. So the first year or so, you know, I, I really struggled, was winning races, but gosh, what am I going to do with this? And um, it impinged on my work and my work impinged on racing. And I just decided, man, I'm going to do both at the same time. So, you know, I was working at Bain Capital. I started to to get into sports car racing. And uh, once I got my pro deal, I started to realize people that I used to read about were all around me. You know, you turn here and there's Roger Penske. You turn there and there's Bill Simpson. And uh, fast forward, it's probably 2014, 15. And Boris said, who's a mutual friend of ours, uh, lives here in in San Diego. He had said to me, hey, Nick, you know, you should talk to Simpson at Long Beach this weekend. Um, and we were racing at Long Beach, of which I never won. I finished twice a couple of times in the PWC races. But um, he's like, you should talk to Simpson about this helmet company. And Bill Simpson had built Simpson Racing up, sold it. Then he had built Impact Performance up, sold it to Sparco. And then he and Chip Ganassi, who also was in the IndyCar paddock, NASCAR paddock, started a company called SG Helmets, Simpson Ganassi. Hmm. And they built football helmets all based on auto race tech. So very similar shell material, 
similar internals, but designed for multiple hits as opposed to one hit. And they made some of the best, safest helmets of the day, but they were the ugliest, worst fitting helmets of all time. And guys <laughs> like Jeff Saturday and Dwight Freeney in the NFL wore them. And this was before all the lawsuits and the movie concussion. And they had a lot of traction and sold, you know, 15, 16,000 of these helmets. And the trick was these advanced materials used in auto racing in the military did better with impacts than the old school plastic and steels. But the big thing was that the weight was less. So that two pound difference between a traditional helmet and their helmet, when you get hit at 80 Gs is 160 pounds and your cervical structure has got to manage all this. So um, nobody knew all the secret sauces and we still don't about concussion front to back, but we've learned a lot since then. So anyway, I'm at the road race driver club dinner at Long Beach. And at the time I was dating this, this beautiful woman from San Diego and Bill was like enamored with her. And he may have had one tequila too many. Sorry, Bill, who's no longer with us. And he came over and he's like, your girlfriend's beautiful. He goes, now let's talk about this football helmet company. So we ended up getting on the topic and it took us about a year and a half to, to finish the deal. He kept changing his mind and he was frustrated, but he told me, he's like, Hey, listen, I don't want this technology to, 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 not permeate football because I think it can make a real difference. And he really warned a couple of the people um, that I was investing with that, Hey, you know what? Professional football and college football, they're old school. They're not open to this. They know concussions are a problem, but they're not willing to take the giant step. And it was similar to what happened with the Hans device in around 99, 2000 is everyone said, I can't get out of the car. If there's a fire, I can't turn my head. It's uncomfortable. It's going to break my collarbone. And then when the Dale Earnhardt event happened, right. everybody just kind of, you know, you know, swung in that direction. And now you never hear anyone complain about those things. No. And, you know, so we we bought the assets of that company from from Bill and I put together a group of friends and, and family. And frankly, some of the guys from the race paddock were investors in this. Eric Davis, who was, you know, always evolving and involved at RT Specialty Insurance. Tony Gaples initially was involved in this. Um, there were some other guys from the race, Paddock, Tom Gloy, um, multi-generational guys, also some Navy SEALs retired. Um, that The commonality was that, A, everybody loves kids and athletes, but B, everyone wore this in different disciplines. You had the SEALs wearing it in combat. Hmm. You had SCAR people wearing it. And then we had professional athletes wearing it. So that's really how the thing came to bear and um, how we got started. And uh, it was a crazy confluence of events. And there's only three other uh, tackle football helmet companies. And of course, we plan to get into other space. We're already there. But uh, it was a great start. Bill was a brilliant guy that got this moving. And I certainly would never have done it on my own. But he and Chip had the uh, foresight and the resources and the courage to go and delve into, uh, you know, another sport with this technology. And we took the baton and uh, started off and the pandemic got in our way, but now we're really starting to make some progress. You mentioned the military. I know that you've always been a huge supporter of the military and the police force. And I thank you for that. And and uh, I'll never forget one of the, one of the, <laughs> Oh, this makes me laugh. One of the most chiseled Marines I've ever seen, SEALs I've ever seen in my life, Jeff Reeves. And <laughs> we were at, we were at, this is an epic story for me because, you know, guys' heads get turned by what? Women. And we're in the paddock of a macho sport, A-type personality. Where Jeff gets out of his car 
and he takes his driving suit and he ties it around his waist and he's still got his Nomex underwear on. Yeah. And he's walking down the paddock. Now, Jeff, Jeff is, um, he could be a poster boy for anything. Yeah. Yeah. And as he's walking through the paddock, I have never seen so many heads turn, male heads turn, watching a guy going down the paddock. You would have <laughs> thought they were checking him out, man. It was, it was just epic. But getting back to the real meat of this thing, the military helmets aspect, uh, is interesting to me because it's, it's more than just lightweight. You're having to make a helmet that's protective as well with Kevlar and things of that nature. Yeah. So when you look at an auto race helmet, a military helmet, there's a lot of common threads there. Usually composite shell, you know, some type of expanded polypropylene or a polystyrene liner. For auto racing, it's designed for one big impact, right? Um, in football, the helmets obviously taken impacts over the life of the helmet for multiple years. Even in the NFL, the helmets are used for multiple years. So then there's some sort of fitment pad or comfort system. And then you have face facial protection, face mask in a football helmet and in a uh, auto race helmet, usually a full face helmet. What Bill had started and we've advanced was we were using a Kevlar shell. Uh, we use Kevlar or nylon. We use a expanded polypropylene liner, D3O, which is like the most advanced foam right now for the masses. Uh, and then instead of a steel face mask or a titanium face mask, Bill was brilliant and used chromoly tubing. So it had the strength, almost built like a roll cage in, in, uh, you know, at a smaller scale. But the way it's welded in the surface area, it's lighter than a titanium mask, stronger than a steel mask, but less expensive than a steel mask. So he really had thought this out. But not being a football guy, the way the helmets looked, it, they just didn't look cool. And for someone, as whether you're six or 36 in the NFL, none of those people buy their own helmets. The six-year-old is parents buying it. The 36-year-old that's in the NFL, the team's buying it. Everyone in between the school is buying it. But then you have the person that does the buying, the parent, the league, the school or college or high school, uh, the pro team. They have a different criteria for helmets. You know, they're worried about, hey, I want to keep my expensive player or my scholarship player or my kid on the field and safe. Um, I don't want liability. It's got to be uh, cost effective. It's got to be something that I can refurbish or service uh, reasonably. So we took all those things into consideration when we designed this stuff. And we went, we found 14 of the best neurologists in the country, um, trauma docs, orthopedic surgeons that could help us design. And then we went to military engineering firms and active sports firms here in San Diego, which is this is the hotbed for that. And we put that knowledge base together and we ended up coming up with you know, a series of helmets. We have a NFL helmet that's in the top rank group of NFL helmets. Um, Virginia Tech's kind of an independent lab, like a consumer reports for protective gear. We have all five-star helmets there that are the lightest. We have the lightest five-star helmet for young players. And the new national standard is three and a half pounds or less. We're the only ones there. And then people chuckle, but Flag football headgear. Flag football is a CIF, a California high school sport. It'll be in the next Olympics. It's a high school sport in New York, Arizona. Um, so that's the start. We'll get into hockey. We'll do rugby. We'll do uh, lacrosse and eventually construction helmets. But all of this stuff started in auto racing. When you think back, open wheel racing was one of the most dangerous sports, dangerous vocations in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I think it was one in seven or one in eight participants would lose their life. That's crazy. That's more dangerous than uh, naval aviation was. So, right. um, but Bill 
his technology changed that. And now it's really starting to change football and people resist change, but we're starting now to punch through that. And um, the, the racing community, I'm telling you that I can't tell you how many the Preston Calverts of the world or other people that have had discussions with me along the way that, you know, they're busy with their own projects, but um, the Pombo brothers, you know, they, they've jumped in and, and, and they've, and they've helped us along the way. And uh, retired NFL players, Rick Meyer, Mike Haynes, um, Tom Brady's got a guy working for him, Peter Cummins, that wrote a book called Brainwash with Merrill Hodge. He runs TB12. He's involved. And the doctors have come and it's really now built some momentum, but it's been a tough road, especially with the pandemic. You have a a listing of the doctors on your website. Again, talk to CEO Nick Hussain with lighthelmets.com. And that's where you can find his information on the product as well as uh, just some great background. But you have on the a list of doctors, there's a plethora of people that are thoroughly impressive. I mean, I thought, here's a guy who's done his homework. He's continued to do his homework. And obviously, we're talking about a sport or sports that are, no pun intended, very impactful on one's health if uh, hit incorrectly and, and if not protected correctly. Uh, you, you mentioned the flag football in 2021. Uh, Drew Brees came alongside you guys. And started a football league called Football in America. He calls it FNA. Um, how's that working out? Is that still going on? Are you still guys uh, sponsoring, or what's how's how's that working? What's going on? So we had an interesting relationship. So Drew started FNA, which is Football in America, with a gentleman by the name of Chris Stewart, and it was based out of San Diego. And you know, with the concerns, uh, rightly or wrongly so, about tackle football, we can talk a little bit about that. An injury, not everyone is designed to be a tackle football player, especially at a high school or a collegiate level. So flag football, which was very popular, really started to grow. And then female flag football really started to grow. So they were just increasing uh, by leaps and bounds. And you know, you have to have structure to these things. You have to have insurance for these things to be able to secure fields and coaching criteria and background checks and everything. And they did a great job. So they were the gold standard. We partnered with them um, for a finite period of time. Drew was a great spokesperson for us. Um, We met him through a bunch of conduits at the same time, a couple of the Navy SEALs along the way that you met, um, do some do some firearms work with with Drew. Um, his kids played at some of the same sport fields that that we did, and it was interesting how the whole thing germinated. And um, you know, Drew's involved in a whole bunch of different projects right yeah. now, and got some other guys uh, involved. But you know, friendly relationship. He's a great guy. He did a super job in the announcing booth, and I think it was a loss that he didn't continue that. But uh, that's a lot of travel involved, and. We actually lived in the same neighborhood for a long period of time and never really crossed paths. But, um, you know, he's a treasure and uh, certainly will be a Hall of Fame uh, in the next com- coming years here. You have Cameron Rising, the quarterback of the uh, Utah Utes, great football player. Now we're in the collegiate sports. How, how does that work? Is it, a, is it a college that reaches out to light helmets and says, hey, we would l- want to supply helmets for our team? Is it individual? What goes on there? So the NFL is unique because the NFL's got their own testing. So it has to pass the standard tests that that all helmets do. But then the NFL has their own testing, and once it's approved there, the equipment team managers bring them in, and then the players pick what they like, what's comfortable, what they can see the best out of, uh, how it fits the balance, etc. And we've really just permeated that space. We've already got fourteen teams, and guys are wearing it right wow. now. From wow. a college perspective, Cameron was. Uh, we were already in colleges. 
across the country, uh, the University of Miami, uh, obviously Utah, uh, Naval Academy. We were in San Diego State. Um, you can go through the list, Auburn, TCU, LSU, Clemson. Um, and, you know, they'll buy three to five helmets. They try them. Sometimes you get 10 kids wearing them. Sometimes you have two kids. Sometimes it's 30. Sometimes it's one. But Cameron was interesting in that um, my son goes to the University of Utah. We went to the Rose Bowl together and they were playing Ohio State tie game 35-35. And what seemed like a pretty innocuous, you know, grabbing Cameron, just dragging him down, not a big hit, hit his head, the back of his head. And uh, he obviously had some sort of a, a, a injury, uh, an event, came out of the game, reported concussion. Second string quarterback comes in, plays admirably, but is not Cam. They lose the game. Uh, shortly thereafter, someone from the auto race community that I met when I moved from San Diego said, do you know the Rising family? And I said, I, I don't, I'm sorry. He said, well, Mr. Rising had seen your helmets on and understood what had Bill had done in racing. He's interested in talking to you. Would you be willing to? So that started a confluence of events between Cam, family, the University of Utah, a bunch of physicians, the athletic director there, training oh, yeah. staff there. And Cam ended up wearing the helmet. So he went from wearing, you know, what the NFL considered the premier helmet uh, at the time and got a concussion and a pretty innocuous impact, put our helmet on six targeting calls last year. And he was, uh, you know, very fortunate not to have any injuries, but he attributed it to the technology that we offer, the reduced weight, the advanced materials. And then we started to see uh, Cam you know, he's a, in the Rose Bowl twice. You know, people love that he's a competitor. Won two Pac-12 championships. Other players coming aboard. And uh, another example is Jordan Palmer. Uh, Carson Palmer won the Heisman Trophy. Jordan played uh, uh, in college. He played in the NFL. And he owns a company called QB Summit, which works with the elite quarterbacks at all levels, from youth, high school, college, college players like uh DTR, Max Dugan, Will Levis, Cam Rising, uh, to pros like Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, and, and Trevor Lawrence. Jordan actually owns this equity slice of, of light, and he's out promoting it. But the remarkable thing about Cam was, um, here's a guy that realized that weight was the enemy. He mm. wanted to swim upstream. He knew that a different and alternative technology was there. He didn't come to us and say, hey, write me a check and I'll wear your helmet. We said, try the helmet. You'll like it. He tried it. He'll, you'll like it. And per the laws in some of these states to use these college players' images, you have to pay him something. So we paid a very modest NIL deal to him. And he's been a great spokesperson. He's a super competitor. He's got a wonderful family. Um, but he's really helped us get this technology out in front of people. There's no way I could advertise on you know, Fox or ABC or CBS or ESPN, whoever carried the Rose Bowl for three hours and you have a guy walking up with your helmet on and every high school kid in America is like, what the heck is that? Well, that really spurred things on. So um, th those are the things that are events and they're all relationship-based. If I wouldn't have run into this gentleman by the name of Michael Dunbar from San Diego, I would have never connected with the Rising family. He would have probably gotten hurt last year with some of one of these hits. And, you know, we wouldn't have gotten the benefit of having such a star wearing our helmet. You know, it's amazing how those little things all add up to a potentially long career as opposed to no career, right? I mean, yeah, you just never know. But uh, we're all blessed in very, very many different ways. I have to ask, is there somewhere on every helmet the number 34? 
<laughs> That's a great question. So, you know, and, and just for everyone else's clarification, when I was a little kid, I was a Packer fan and uh, uh, I've gone to Packer games since 1970, probably when I was three, four years old, but the nemesis of the Packers were, were, were the bears. And, uh, but they had a player, Walter Payton. I think he started playing in 77 or so. And he was just a remarkable athlete and never caused problems in uh, off the field. He was a great guy. And he actually got into auto racing and, uh, I met him a couple of times and it was a real treat to, you know, meet somebody that you think's a rock star. So I took that number on um, and was 34 forever. So unfortunately we haven't done that, but we do take Punisher stickers. And that is kind of in honor of the the SEAL teams um, that utilize the the Punisher logo, um, you know, during the Iraq war and in Afghanistan. Um, So when we find special kids that, uh, are going to be wearing one of our helmet. We always make sure to put a Punisher logo somewhere on it or in it. Is your helmet recognizable to the general public outside? I mean, in a sense that you can spot it immediately, but what's yeah. it maybe is on it that differentiates it from others? So the the different helmets, you know, if you look at a Riddell Speedflex, it's got the cool hexagon, yes. you know, in the front. Um, our helmet's got some unique venting on the sides of it, but it also, instead of having like a lap welded mask, it's very sleek, almost like a video game face mask. And that's a chromoly tubing we talked about. Our new helmet, actually, the whole internal component of the helmet is all 3D printed and it can be printed in different colors. So now when you think about it, it, the traditional helmet, all of the components on the inside, you have to build tooling for. If you want to make a change, you got to build a new tool or modify the tool. With 3D printing, you can make changes on the fly. So it allows us to make changes readily. I can scan your head and make a specific helmet, or I can make a large helmet and say, boy, you're a quarterback. You're going to get pushed backwards, not in a huge hit, but your head's going to hit the ground. We can change the diameter, the lattice in the back to better protect certain players at certain impacts. And we're really just starting on that customizable component. But the new helmet with the ability to colorize some of the internal components, it looks slick. And uh, again, with only maybe half a dozen different styles of helmets on the field, ours really stands out. And our next helmet, you know, which we're going to try to introduce in Q1 here of uh, 2024, has even a more aggressive look. And, you know, you got to balance with form and function. People want to Make it make sure that it looks cool, but right. you also have to make sure that you don't step in anybody else's intellectual property because that's a problem. Um, and it's got to have function that can you make this in Kevlar? Can you make this in a thermoplastic? Can you make it in a composite? Or is it too stylized where we can't cut those holes? So, you know, you're always kind of fighting and wrestling with the engineers and the lawyers to try to find the bright blend of style, uh, making sure you're not going to get into litigation art regarding IP and then scalability cost. When uh, when you lift a helmet up, obviously I know a, a race helmet better than I do a football helmet. Uh, weight difference between the weight of a racing helmet, football helmet. It's up to 50% in some cases, but probably around 40% on average. So if you take a traditional football helmet, as it's configured on the field, they're usually right under five pounds to just under six pounds. Our helmets weigh anywhere from three pounds, five, six ounces, all the way up to maybe three pounds, 10 ounces, 11 ounces, depending on the face mask and things. So that's a huge weight difference. And people say, gosh, how 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 does two pounds factor in? Well, think about it in an 80 G collision, which is pretty standard on the football field, a linebacker hitting a tight end, that two pounds becomes 160 pounds. And 
uh, when you think about your neck, your cervical structures, about the, the diameter of your wrist, right. that is getting snapped around 160 pounds. That's a huge amount of force that's uncontrolled. And if you shake a yogurt around, you know what happens to the inside of it. So neck strength's key. The helmet you wear is key. The fitment of the helmet is key. But the concept of a six-pound bowling ball and a three-pound bowling ball, I'd rather be in the six-pound one, not the light one, the heavy one. Right. But on the human body, it's a 250-pound uh, sorry, 212, banging into a 214, the two pounds doesn't matter. But it right. does when it's on your unsupported neck, when right. it's getting snapped around that you can't control it, and it's an ADG impact. So educating and getting people to understand that the 67 Oldsmobile Tornado is not better than mm-hmm. the current BMW 3 Series in, in a collision just because it's heavier. And that's why we brought all these docs in, and that's why we use animations, and that's why we we're trying to teach and educate because uh, it's very easy in businesses where there's only three or four competitors for people to be stagnant because they can make a lot more money not advancing technology. And our goal is to push everyone else along. We're here to make money, protect the sport, get more kids on the field so that they can play these contact sports and semi-contact sports. Um, but uh, you know, we also want to push the competition along. The People deserve that. When you bought a cell phone in 1985, your cell phone bill is $1,000, $1,200, and the phone was this big. Well, competition along the way drove the size of the phone down, the cost of the phone down, the service level's better, the cost of the service down, and that's what we're here to do. Um, Anytime you have something where there's one major competitor, uh, it just doesn't work out too well for the consumer. Nick, you mentioned pro football, and you're working with 14 teams. I saw something recently where ink to deal with the Vegas Raiders. What what does that mean then? So if the pros get to choose what they want, is this just that you are now allowed in the clubhouse as a choice? Yeah, that that's that's really it. So what happens is, um, you know, the NFL approves the various helmets. They test them once a year. Then they send a memo to all the teams, and they say, hey, this new helmet, new company, you know, here's the ballpark way. Here's where it was on the test. You know, in our case, we're in the highest group, highest rated group of uh, recommended helmets. And uh, then either one of our reps is contacting the team or the team contacts us. And almost immediately, the the uh, Las Vegas Raiders reached out, the equipment manager did, and, and bought a few helmets. Now, what happens is they have what's called a helmet tree in the locker room. And it looks like a tree and it's got you know, some Riddell's shot, Vices, Zenith helmets, they're all hanging on there. And most of the players, you know, wore something in college or they wore something last year in the pros, but they're always looking for a competitive advantage. A few years ago, they were taking knee pads and thigh pads out or cutting shoulder pads out and trying to reduce weight. Well, I'm taking two whole pounds off the worst part of the body and I'm keeping the safety the same, if not even improving it significantly. And some of these secondary impacts head to ground, like what happened to Tua last year or Cam. <laughs> and Now players will go in and choose them. Now, because of the test was only conducted a month ago, the players are already in camp. So you miss the chance when they first come in to try something new. But we expect uh, pretty solid permeation. I think we'll get the more than 50% of the teams to have the helmet in the locker room. And, uh, you know, if we can get 100, 200 helmets out on field this year, I'll be thrilled. But, you know, think about NFL football. Um, It's the ultimate in, in competitive. Nobody get there's no handicap like in golf. Right. There's no requirement of hiring certain types of people. There's no, it's like, you can play lineman. If, if you weighed a hundred pounds and you're the best offensive lineman, 
guess what? You're going to get the start. Is that going to happen? Probably not. But competition is what breeds the best teams. You get guys in the NFL that would qualify in the Olympics for the 100-meter dash. You've got guys in the NFL that could squat seven or 800 pounds. Like the speed that these guys travel at, 23 miles an hour, 23 yeah. and a half miles an hour. Think about this. If you have two guys that can run that fast and they weigh, say, 210, 220, right? They, so that thing at 420 pounds, that's like me riding a CR250 at 45 miles an hour and running into a stats. That's the force you're talking about. Um, and and people don't think about it. I mean, these guys are, are fantastic athletes. And I will say that the majority of them, especially people that we've met, um, you know, and I can't, I can speak to p- only people that I've met. They're great. They're great guys. And the people in the locker room and the coaches, um, it, you know, it's a great sport that teaches people at all levels. We see NFL football uh, on TV and that's kind of, what everybody watches, right? It's part of American culture. People will go to high school football game if your kid's playing or if it's in your your community or college game. Nobody really goes to a Pop Warner game other than the parents. But every kid that plays all these games learns how to deal with others. Nobody cares if you're in the huddle, if it's a black kid, a Samoan kid, a Jewish kid, an Armenian kid. Nobody cares. It's third and eight. We've been sweating together for four months. We need to ram it down these guys' throat and score. <laughs> And after the game, we're going to shake these guys' hands and we're going to respect them because if they didn't show up, we wouldn't get to play. And the beauty of that is that all these small goals of getting your block right, I get a first down. I get a first down, I score. I score, I win. I go to the playoffs. Small goals equate to big goals. Like it's Americana at its best. So the competition there. So you really find that some of these teams have open door and they're welcome to have a new competitor in the space. Then there's other people, they don't want to talk to us yet. And, you know, that's part of permeating any new market. We expect that. Talking with CEO uh, Nick Asan of Light Helmets. You can find him at lighthelmets.com. I would imagine, Nick, if a guy's walking up to the helmet tree and he picks up the helmet and it's two pounds lighter, two things are going through his head. Where's the rest of the helmet? And do I really want to get hit with this on my head? That's right. That's right. So, you know, fortunately, or or in, in the, the testing protocols that are out there, there are three different groups that test these. An organization called Noxie that tests every helmet at all different levels of play. Um, there's a Virginia Tech that's a consumer reports. They rank helmets one star to five star. Uh, publish other information about them. And then the NFL tests them. So because our helmets score so well on these and uh, the information, especially with the internet now, providing a lot of different viewpoints, people can go and learn quite a bit, especially on YouTube about different materials, helmets, and they're not hearing it from me because you'd expect me to be a proponent of my product, but all the doctors that are involved and and other players and things like that. And, uh, you know, the American public doesn't necessarily trust the president right now. They don't trust Congress. They don't trust other politicians, but they trust the military. And they understand that the materials and the technology used there are the best of the best. All of our tax money has gone into developing uh, anti-lock brakes on an airplane that now are on your car. You know, that's a great example. Uh, Carbon fiber, the internet, all of that came from the military. It trickles down. It's a way for uh, technology to be um, you know, born and then, you know, spread in a different fashion amongst us. So the fact that we're bringing this military and the auto race technology, um, when somebody sees an Indy car go up in the catch fence and it gets torn apart and the guy hops out, um, or in the Formula One race last year where the guy went through the fence, I can't remember, it was a Grosjean, and yeah. 
you know, you look at those type of impacts and people trust those materials and for good reason. And these guys that are in these locker rooms, they are making a lot of money or they're in college and their goal is to make a lot of money or they got to go to class the next day. They want to be healthy. They want to look cool. They want to perform well, but they also want to be healthy. So um, they dig into it and it's a great opportunity for us to be able to educate because otherwise they're just picking the helmet that they happen to wear prior um, or that looks cool. We're now we're bringing something new to it, which is player performance and a different level of safety. You've been out of racing for a little bit, about five years, it sounds like. Um, you were in it for 25 years. What's the future hold for Nick Sand as far as racing goes? What I mean, you're obviously heavily steeped in what you're doing with light helmets, and you want to see that to its fruition and, and see it continue to grow. But there's got to be a little nagging going on and to say, got to get back out there. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, the, the race... Uh, life. And I'll call it that because, you know, there's a handful of things. Like if, if somebody's a Marine, they're always a Marine. If they're a doctor, they're always a doctor. If they're a pilot, they're always a pilot. If you're a race car driver, you're always a race car driver and getting to race at a high level televised series um, with the best of of the best and perform and and perform well. And I was blessed to have some great teammates uh, be on some great teams real time in Bimmer world. And I, I could carry on. Um, but the quality of people in the race paddock is what I miss the most. Um, you being one of, one of the, one of the guys I felt, um, through the best times of my existence and some of the more troubling times, um, I always felt like I was in a cocoon and it was a bit of a traveling circus, but there was always laughter. Uh, there was always optimism. And when you think of the number of variables of things that can go wrong, when you get into a race car and, you, you have weather, you have mechanical failure, you have other driver judgment, your judgment. People don't understand all the variables going through your mind at the start of these races. We did standing starts, which were even more dangerous. And, um, you know, I'm a Christian guy. And, uh, you know, at that period of time, when you know that risk is upon you before each race, when you'd come and say a brief prayer with each of us that chose to do so, um, you know, it gave you a moment of peace. But when I was at the track, it was always peaceful for me. And uh, it, it really taught me patience, mm. uh, taught me perseverance, because nothing's more frustrating than, hey, I qualified on the pole at Mid-Ohio and my car overheated on the warm-up lab. <laughs> Now I'm driving around in ninth place because of the cars in limp mode. And I'm so angry. You can't get out and say, Hey, the crew guy didn't connect this properly. He's a dumbass. Like you just can't do that. So it really causes you to respond and not to react. But uh, the thing I think that would get me back in the car, um, you know, once I can get some time to do it, are my sons grew up around some of the greatest human beings on the planet in the paddock. Hmm. Um, all my teammates, the the guys that ran the teams, the officials uh, from when they were, you know, very young, you know, my youngest son went to the track when he was one year old and uh, they really appreciated and they benefited so much when they're around other adults. Now of having been around adults, everyone walking up and shaking their hand, you know, they do such a good job of interacting with different people, but also situational awareness. There's not a yeah. single auto race driver or anyone even in the paddock that doesn't see everything. I could not see you for five years. And if we were sitting in an airplane and there's a water drop from someplace that wasn't supposed to, we'd both see it at the exact second. And 
that's something that's very u- unique and it's hypervigilance and it's a psychological yeah. phenomena. And um, sometimes it's uh, frustrating because you can't turn it off, right? right. Because it's a little bit of anxiety because you're always looking at what can go wrong. And when you're in the car, that's your job. And so many variables are there, as I mentioned earlier, but um, I'd love to get my kids and, and I in an endurance race and it could be lemons. It could be 24 hours of Rolex. Um, you know, certainly the budgets for those are very different, but enjoying those experiences uh, with my two sons at this juncture in my career would be uh, certainly worthy of get me get me back in the car. You mentioned situational awareness, and one of the things that drives my wife nuts is we're driving down the freeway, and she goes, "Hey, hey, you're getting a little close to this." I said, "I'm so far ahead of that. I'm right. looking so far down the road, and I'm looking so far behind me, and that's yeah. just that's just." you know, a portion of what I'm looking at. And that's already been taken care of. I already got that one handled. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a I have a habit I brought with me from racing that after, you know, 18 years on the road, uh, I carried with me. And it, it, even to this day, I try to tackle it because, um, and, and when I say this, I say this respectfully of all women, but uh, wives are typically not prompt. They are on their time schedule. And if we have to be someplace, it's always on their time. But I'll never forget the first time I hit the paddock when I was racing. And I got screamed at by the paddock queen, I called her at the time, that said, hey, you're late. You're not going to be starting. You're going to be starting at the back. And I'll never forget that. And promptness was always something that was a first of you know of, of mind because you had to be there. Otherwise you weren't going to be where you thought you were going to be. Yeah. Uh, it's, we're time certain, right? Remember yeah. the, the Long Beach Grand Prix had a packet that was maybe an inch or two thick of, of every single timelined item for three solid days. It's like, holy right. cow, how can you do that? You know, yeah. but that's what we lived off of. That's what yeah. we did. What's, what's one of the worst habits you think you brought with you from racing into life today? Oh man. Um, and then you can publish. <laughs> I think probably, well, if one is drinking monster energy drinks, so I drink the blue oh. monster energy that doesn't have any, any supposed calories in it. You know, I'd love to say it had sugar and that's, that's my powerful build, but uh, Brandon Davis was my teammate at real time and he must've gotten a sponsorship from monster. And in the beginning it was the green sugar monster yes. and I don't want to drink that. Um, but they bring it by the palate. And then when the blue stuff came out, I started drinking that, but um, I think that it's a good and a bad habit is the the humor at the racetrack is it's just nonstop. Like somebody cuts their hand, something bad happens. I mean, with the, there are limits, but sure. always humor is involved. I, I remember I crashed at uh, the a wheel broke on the car in the downhill at Lime Rock. Mm. And I went straight off in the bottom and I cracked the bottom of my sternum. The, my xiphoid cracked off and oh, no. I mean, it was just the vibration through my body. I'm sure I had some type of light concussion and I was hurting. Get out of the car. The car's, you know, basically destroyed. Um, my kids were there and they were with uh, Kurt Young, who was an engineer at real time. Yep. And I'm thinking to myself, thank God I'm still lucid and at it. So I get wheeled into medical. They're checking me out. And this young guy who was racing with us at the time was not so young anymore, Robert Stout. And he looks like he had just drank 500 bottles of whiskey and the exhaust <laughs> in his car. So he's breathing carbon monoxide. And I'm laying there my, my got a hematoma on my chest, which I'm trying to hide because I want to race the next day. And I'm going through this, you know, the trying to BS on the concussion thing. So I get back in the car. Don't do this at home. And Stout walks in and he looks near death and he goes, I don't feel very good. I'm like, Stout, you look like shit here. Take my spot. And I, I got up. <laughs> and, all right. 
And, you know, I still tease them about that now, but those are the funny things where humor at the inopportune time at the track was just absorbed. But when you introduce it with the wrong people, you know, now when something, somebody drops something, they break something, whatever, and then you give them a little bit of a, a rash about it, that's probably the worst thing. But the hypervigilance is, it bothers some people. Like I go into a restaurant, I got to face the, the the entrance to see mm. what's going on. Um, when I'm driving, I always drive a little bit faster than traffic because I want to drive through the sight picture that I just saw. Yep. I don't want to be in the Frogger game where people are going past me and backwards. Yeah, you know, yeah. So there are things like that, but um, I, I really don't look at it as any negative component at all, other than you get spoiled, right? Um, right. You're sitting there and 2,000 people want your your autograph. You're getting into a half million dollar car that somebody else services and, and paid for. Um I met some great people uh, along the way, and it's hard to replace that level of camaraderie. Now, you get that on the football field when you're a younger person. You got a supercharged version of it when you you know you're at the racetrack. But I don't think you can ever get back to that. And um, that's probably the hardest thing for me is no matter if I play tennis, flag football, whatever else as a 55, 56 year old man, um, I can't recapture that being the best at anything anymore. I can't recapture the same camaraderie and you can't recapture where a thousandth of a second mattered where now it's like, eh, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's just a whole different world, but those things apply well. And, you know, try to teach your kids about it and, uh, and share with them. They got to observe, but I think they apply it in their own way. And uh, I wouldn't change any of that uh, related to those chapters of my life. Being a part of that world with you and the other guys and gals and, infrastructure obviously for what we were doing and we were all part of the show i'll, I'll never forget we were at a mariner baseball game watching the boston red sox in town and my daughters were all with me so the four of us were sitting there at batting practice and the crowd started to come in but you're looking at all the infrastructure happening on the field and the comment from some of my girls was you know sure it'd be kind of cool to be down there and i said that's exactly where i am yeah. With the with the racers, you know, when we're out at a racetrack, we are the infrastructure for what's going on, and we're on the field. But this is a different field, you know, and it just uh, maybe appreciate a little bit more what we all had in common. And by the way, I'll never forget being in infirmary at Mid Ohio when Mike Lewis had crashed, and he had his driving suit pulled down, and he's got his socks off, and he's got these freaking long toenails. I mean, they are so long. And so he doesn't feel good, right? He's out of it. And I look at him and I go, do you ever think about cutting your toenails before you race today? That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you mentioned a, a unique thing about you're being at the track and you're down there. And I think it, it just registered to me now, like the, the, the segment of time between, you know, we would pull in for the standing start mm. and, you know, you'd get lined up and someone would be there to stop you exactly on the line and you were staggered and you were, you know, position based on your, your qualifying. So you're sitting there and then somebody says the grid's full. Everybody goes off the grid. Now you're out there and it's just you, all the effort that your guys put in on the car, God, and that's it. And then the five second board would go up and then you'd sit there and you have the car and, you know, the line lock on. So it doesn't roll the things in launch control mode. You get everything, make sure your belts and everything are tight. And all of a sudden the light would go on and you'd hear all the motors will come on and I would pick one pixel because I remember Steve Largent saying don't look at the football look at the tip of the football mm. I pick one pixel and the second will go out there was a millisecond of quiet and then it was just like unbelievable violence of cars moving in every direction like hot dog wrappers and stuff flying where because people were driving where no one had ever driven before on the track <laughs> 
somebody's barking in your ear, stall left, stall left, and you're moving, you can tell based on how cars are moving and the smoke going up in the air, whether cars are touching, wheels are touching, pieces and particulate matter, and you're processing all this, and then stop that, hit pause, and you go in a football field, and you're calling an audible as a quarterback, and you're standing there, and the guys are looking at you, and sweat's dripping off the linebacker's nose, and the other guy's breathing hard, and your lineman's moving around, and making a call in the line. And then there's that millisecond and the ball gets snapped. And it's the same thing. You're going from the intellectual run up to this explosion. And uh, uh, it, it, there's some unique parallels there um, in, in, I wouldn't give up either of those things. And if somebody asked me, Hey, do you like, you know, football better than racing or racing better than football? You know, it's hard for me to answer that question. I think if you ask whoever's done both of those things, they might give you a different answer, but um they both were a contributor to to me today, and frankly, this has not been an easy path in the, in this company. Um, you know, we ran into a pandemic. You're fighting these giants that have done things a certain way. You have people that are worried about getting sued, and if you're showing a new way to do something, and they've mm. been doing it the old way, it exposes them. Um, we've had to fight all of that, and uh, you know, it, it can it can be a challenge. But the racing thing brought the patience and peace and calmness to be able to look ahead be an optimist, look to the next thing, look three layers deep uh, to do this. And um, I didn't have the tools before I started racing to be able to do something like this. Um, so, you know, and I don't care if somebody club races, uh, you know, at a regional at Button Willow in California, where they're racing uh, against, you know, Verstappen and Monaco. Uh, there's a common thread there. And that's this hypervigilance, but it's also how to control your emotions and how to think three levels deep. And uh, it's a, it's a great tool for everyone. We've been talking with Nick Hassan, the CEO of Light Helmets. You can find him at lighthelmets.com. Nick, what a pleasure to, to see you again as I see you and then uh, just to talk with you. And it feels like you haven't changed at all. I'm sure all my gray hair is losing <laughs> me, but uh, I, I really, you're truly one of the guys that I've deeply missed and, and, uh, the camaraderie and, and quite frankly, my second family, there's, there's nothing, as you've stated numerous times in this interview, there's, there's nothing that can replace what we've been through. I've been so blessed, so blessed. So thank you for being one of the blessings in my life. And I mean, sincerely. Uh, I appreciate you, Dan, and, uh, always bringing calm, uh, you know, and, and, uh, thoughts before the race being reflective, you know, at that, at that little window of time, um, but also being there for everyone and and not just pre-race, but uh, you know, just because you're in a race paddock doesn't mean that you don't have family issues, health issues, people passed away. I remember coming to a race after uh, my father had passed away and um, Peter Cunningham was good enough to get a bunch of memorial stickers mm. and put them on and gave them out and everyone had them on their cars. But you know, those feels of uh, moments of emptiness. And my parents always taught me, hey, nobody gets out of here alive. You can be sad when we pass away, but there's no grief, right? But fighting through those things, going through a divorce, going through financial uh, turmoil, um, you know, different things going on in the world, 9-11. I mean, all of these different things impact all of us. And um, whether you're at a racetrack, whether you're at a tennis club, um, you have a group of people, but we were fortunate to have a group of people that, you know, uh, participated in a very unique activity at a very unique time. We were very blessed. And uh, I think all of us were were better for it. We'll be back here on Dr. Carcast, your host, Dan Lacey, uh, with The Glove Box. 
Turning to the glove box, we look at Ephesians 6, and in this is uh, verse 17 that says, Take the helmet of salvation. Now, in this passage, it's talking about putting on the breastplate of righteousness, shouting your feet for the preparation of the gospel of peace, putting on the shield of faith in order to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one, and also praying, along with picking up the sword, which is the word of God. And in this passage, there is the helmet of salvation. I just want to focus on that. We're talking about light helmets here with Nick Asan, the CEO of lighthelmets.com, and truly appreciate the man himself and then his vision and his uh, his ability to stick with things and get them done. It's been a journey that he's been on his whole life. He's been successful in many operations and many, many ventures. And this is another one of those that he's been successful at with those around him. But putting on the helmet of salvation is that which for me represents having Christ as my personal Lord and Savior is that protection is that which no matter what happens to me, I've got that helmet of salvation on me. And I think about the helmets that I've worn over the days of my racing. I had Simpson helmets on my head. I've had Bell helmets on my head. And I would dare to say that those have in many ways, saved me over time because of getting my head knocked around in various, well, a couple of accidents that were pretty epic uh, for me. Long story short, we need to have that helmet of salvation on us to protect us, to know that no matter what happens to us, no matter what happens over time, in the end, our salvation is secure and our noggin being, our soul, our spirit is saved through Christ. Well, we'll be back with more on Dr. Carcast as we end this segment. Remember that you can catch us on Spotify, Google, and Amazon, as well as drcarcast.com. And we will be back with more.